Section twenty five of Round the Sofa by Elizabeth Gaskell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Noel Badrian. The Poor Clare, Part Two. I now come to the time in which I myself was mixed up with the people that I have been writing about, and to make you understand how I became connected with them, I must give you some little account of myself. My father was the younger son of a Devonshire gentleman of moderate property. My eldest uncle succeeded to the estate of his forefathers. My second became an eminent attorney in London, and my father took orders. Like most poor clergymen, he had a large family, and I have no doubt was glad enough when my London uncle, who was a bachelor, offered to take charge of me and bring me up to be his successor in business. In this way I came to live in London, in my uncle's house, not far from Gray's Inn, and to be treated and esteemed as his son, and to labour with him in his office. I was very fond of the old gentleman. He was the confidential agent of many country squires, and had attained to his present position as much by knowledge of human nature as by knowledge of law, though he was learned enough in the latter. He used to say his business was law, his pleasure heraldry. From his intimate acquaintance with family history, and all the tragic courses of life therein involved, to hear him talk at leisure times about any coat of arms that came across his path was as good as a play or a romance. Many cases of disputed property, dependent on a love of genealogy, were brought to him as to a great authority on such points. If the lawyer who came to consult him was young, he would take no fee, only give him a long lecture on the importance of attending to heraldry. If the lawyer was of mature age and good standing, he would mock him pretty well, and abuse him to me afterwards as negligent of one great branch of the profession. His house was in a stately new street called Ormond Street, and in it he had a handsome library. But all the books treated of things that were past, none of them planned or looked forward into the future. I worked away, partly for the sake of my family at home, partly because my uncle had really taught me to enjoy the kind of practice in which he himself took such delight. I suspect I worked too hard. At any rate, in 1718 I was far from well, and my good uncle was disturbed by my ill looks. One day he rang the bell twice into the clerk's room at the dingy office in Gray's Inn Lane. It was the summons for me, and I went into his private room, just as a gentleman, whom I knew well enough by sight, as an Irish lawyer of more reputation than he deserved, was leaving. My uncle was slowly rubbing his hands together and considering. I was there two or three minutes before he spoke. Then he told me that I must pack up my portmanteau that very afternoon, and start that night by post-horse for Westchester. I should get there, if all went well, at the end of five days' time, and must then wait for a packet to cross over to Dublin. From thence I must proceed to a certain town named Kildoon, and in that neighbourhood I was to remain, making certain inquiries as to the existence 
of any descendants of the younger branch of a family to whom some valuable estates had descended in the female line the irish lawyer whom i had seen was weary of the case and would willingly have given up the property without further ado to a man who appeared to claim them but on laying his tables and trees before my uncle the latter had foreseen so many possible prior claimants that the lawyer had begged him to undertake the management of the whole business in his youth my uncle would have liked nothing better than going over to ireland himself and ferreting out every scrap of paper or parchment and every word of tradition respecting the family as it was old and gouty he deputed me accordingly i went to kildoon i suspect i had something of my uncle's delight in following up a genealogical scent for i very soon found out when on the spot that mr rooney the irish lawyer would have got both himself and the first claimant into a terrible scrape if he had pronounced his opinion that the estates ought to be given up to him there were three poor irish fellows each nearer of kin to the last possessor but a generation before there was a still nearer relation who had never been accounted for nor his existence ever discovered by the lawyers i venture to think till i routed him out from the memory of some of the old dependents of the family what had become of him i travelled backwards and forwards i crossed over to france and came back again with a slight clue which ended in my discovering that wild and dissipated himself he had left one child a son of yet worse character than his father that this same hugh fitzgerald had married a very beautiful serving-woman of the burns a person below him in hereditary rank but above him in character that he had died soon after his marriage leaving one child whether a boy or girl i could not learn and that the mother had returned to live in the family of the burns now the chief of this latter family was serving in the duke of berwick's regiment and it was long before i could hear from him it was more than a year before i got a short haughty letter i fancy he had a soldier's contempt for a civilian an irishman's hatred for an englishman an exiled jacobite's jealousy of one who prospered and lived tranquilly under the government he looked upon as an usurpation bridget fitzgerald he said had been faithful to the fortunes of his sister had followed her abroad and to england when mrs starkey had thought fit to return both her sister and her husband were dead he knew nothing of bridget fitzgerald at the present time probably sir philip tempest his nephew's guardian might be able to give me some information i have not given the little contemptuous terms the way in which faithful service was meant to imply more than it said all that has nothing to do with my story sir philip when applied to told me that he paid an annuity regularly to an old woman named fitzgerald living at coldholme the village near starkey manor house whether she had any descendants he could not say one bleak march evening i came in sight of the place described at the beginning of my story i could hardly understand the rude dialect in which the direction to old bridget's house was given you see yon furleets all ran together 
gave me no idea that I was to guide myself by the distant lights that shone in the windows of the hall, occupied for the time by a farmer who held the post of steward, while the squire, now four or five and twenty, was making the grand tour. However, at last I reached Bridget's cottage, a low, moss-grown place. The palings that had once surrounded it were broken and gone, and the underwood of the forest came up to the walls and must have darkened the windows. It was about seven o'clock, not late to my London notions, but after knocking for some time at the door and receiving no reply, I was driven to conjecture that the occupant of the house was gone to bed. So I betook myself to the nearest church I had seen three miles back on the road I had come, sure that close to that I should find an inn of some kind. And early the next morning I set off back to Coldhome, by a field path which my host assured me I should find a shorter cut than the road I had taken the night before. It was a cold, sharp morning. My feet left prints in the sprinkling of hoar-frost that covered the ground. Nevertheless, I saw an old woman whom I instinctively suspected to be the object of my search, in a sheltered covert on one side of my path. I lingered and watched her. She must have been considerably above the middle size in her prime, for when she raised herself from the stooping position in which I first saw her, there was something fine and commanding in the erectness of her figure. She drooped again in a minute or two, and seemed looking for something on the ground, as, with bent head, she turned off from the spot where I gazed upon her, and was lost to my sight. I fancy I missed my way, and made a round in spite of the landlord's directions, for by the time I had reached Bridget's cottage she was there, with no semblance of hurried walk or discomposure of any kind. The door was slightly ajar. I knocked, and the majestic figure stood before me, silently waiting the explanation of my errand. Her teeth were all gone, so the nose and chin were brought near together. The grey eyebrows were straight and almost hung over her deep cavernous eyes, and the thick white hair lay in silvery masses over the low, wide, wrinkled forehead. For a moment I stood uncertain how to shape my answer to the solemn questioning of her silence. "'Your name is Bridget Fitzgerald, I believe?' She bowed her head in assent. "'I have something to say to you. May I come in?' I am unwilling to keep you standing. You cannot tire me, she said, and at first she seemed inclined to deny me the shelter of her roof. But the next moment she had searched the very soul in me with her eyes during that instant, she led me in and dropped the shadowing hood of her grey draping cloak, which had previously hid part of the character of her countenance. The cottage was rude and bare enough, but before that picture of the Virgin, of which I have made mention, there stood a little cup filled with fresh primroses. While she paid her reverence to the Madonna, I understood why she had been out seeking through the clumps of green in the sheltered copse. Then she turned round and bade me be seated. The expression of her face, which all this time I was studying, was not bad as the stories of my last night's landlord had led me to expect. 
it was a wild stern fierce indomitable countenance seamed and scarred by agonies of solitary weeping but it was neither cunning nor malignant my name is bridget fitzgerald said she by way of opening our conversation and your husband was hugh fitzgerald of knockmahon near kildoon in ireland a faint light came into the dark gloom of her eyes he was may i ask if you had any children by him the light in her eyes grew quick and red she tried to speak i could see but something rose in her throat and choked her and until she could speak calmly she would fain not speak at all before a stranger in a minute or so she said i had a daughter one mary fitzgerald then her strong nature mastered her strong will and she cried out with a trembling wailing cry oh man what of her what of her she rose from her seat and came and clutched at my arm and looked in my eyes there she read as i suppose my utter ignorance of what had become of her child for she went blindly back to her chair and sat rocking herself and softly moaning as if i were not there i not daring to speak to the lone and awful woman after a little pause she knelt down before the picture of our lady of the holy heart and spoke to her by all the fanciful and poetic names of the litany o rose of sharon o tower of david o star of the sea have you no comfort for my sore heart am i for ever to hope grant me at least despair and so on she went heedless of my presence her prayers grew wilder and wilder till they seemed to me to touch on the borders of madness and blasphemy almost involuntarily i spoke as if to stop her have you any reason to think that your daughter is dead she rose from her knees and came and stood before me mary fitzgerald is dead said she i shall never see her again in the flesh no tongue ever told me but i know she is dead i have yearned so to see her and my heart's will is fearful and strong it would have drawn her to me before now if she had been a wanderer on the other side of the world i wonder often it has not drawn her out of the grave to come and stand before me and hear me tell her how i loved her for sir we parted unfriends i knew nothing but the dry particulars needed for my lawyer's quest but i could not help feeling for the desolate woman and she must have read the unusual sympathy with her wistful eyes yes sir we did she never knew how i loved her and we parted unfriends and i fear me that i wished her voyage might not turn out well only meaning oh blessed virgin you know i only meant that she should come home to her mother's arms as to the happiest place on earth but my wishes are terrible their power goes beyond my thought and there is no hope for me if my words brought mary harm but i said you do not know that she is dead even now you hoped she might be alive listen to me and i told her the tale i have already told you giving it all in the driest manner 
for I wanted to recall the clear sense that I felt almost sure she had possessed in her younger days, and by keeping up her attention to details, restrain the vague wildness of her grief. She listened with deep attention, putting from time to time such questions as convinced me I had to do with no uncommon intelligence, however dimmed and shorn by solitude and mysterious sorrow. Then she took up her tale, and in few brief words told me of her wanderings abroad in vain search after her daughter, sometimes in the wake of armies, sometimes in camp, sometimes in city. The lady whose waiting woman Mary had gone to be had died soon after the date of her last letter home. Her husband, the foreign officer, had been serving in Hungary, whither Bridget had followed him, but too late to find him. Vague rumours reached her that Mary had made a great marriage, and this sting of doubt was added whether the mother might not be close to her child under her new name and even hearing of her every day and yet never recognizing the lost one under the appellation she then bore at length the thought took possession of her that it was possible that all this time mary might be at home at coldholme in the trough of bolland in lancashire in england and home came bridget in that vain hope to her desolate hearth and empty cottage here she had thought it safest to remain. If Mary was in life, it was here she would seek for her mother. I noted down one or two particulars out of Bridget's narrative that I thought might be of use to me, for I was stimulated to further search in a strange and extraordinary manner. It seemed as if it were impressed upon me that I must take up the quest where Bridget had laid it down and this for no reason that had previously influenced me, such as my uncle's anxiety on the subject, my own reputation as a lawyer, and so on. But from some strange power which had taken possession of my will only that very morning, and which forced it in the direction it chose. I will go, said I, I will spare nothing in the search, trust to me, I will learn all that can be learnt, you shall know all that money or pains or wit can discover. It is true she may be long dead, but she may have left a child. A child? she cried, as if for the first time this idea had struck her mind. Hear him, blessed virgin, he says she may have left a child, and you have never told me, though I have prayed so for a sign, waking or sleeping nay said i i know nothing but what you tell me you say you heard of her marriage but she caught nothing of what i said she was praying to the virgin in a kind of ecstasy which seemed to render her unconscious of my very presence from coldholme i went to sir philip tempest's the wife of the foreign officer had been a cousin of his father's and from him I thought I might gain some particulars as to the existence of the Count de la Tour d'Auvergne, and where I could find him, for I knew questions de vive voix aid the flagging recollection, and I was determined to lose no chance for want of trouble. But Sir Philip had gone abroad, and it would be some time before I could receive an answer. 
so i followed my uncle's advice to whom i had mentioned how wearied i felt both in body and mind by my will-o'-the-wisp search he immediately told me to go to harrogate there to await sir philip's reply i should be near to one of the places connected with my search cold home not far from sir philip tempest in case he returned and i wished to ask him any further questions and in conclusion my uncle bade me try to forget all about my business for a time this was far easier said than done i have seen a child on a common blown along by a high wind without power of standing still and resisting the tempestuous force i was somewhat in the same predicament as regarded my mental state something resistless seemed to urge my thoughts on through every possible course by which there was a chance of attaining to my object i did not see the sweeping moors when i walked out when i held a book in my hand and read the words their sense did not penetrate to my brain if i slept i went on with the same ideas always flowing in the same direction this could not last long without having a bad effect on the body i had an illness which although i was racked with pain was a positive relief to me as it compelled me to live in the present suffering and not in the visionary researches i had been continually making before my kind uncle came to nurse me and after the immediate danger was over my life seemed to slip away in delicious languor for two or three months i did not ask so much did i dread falling into the old channel of thought whether any reply had been received to my letter to sir philip i turned my whole imagination right away from all that subject my uncle remained with me until nigh summer and then returned to his business in london leaving me perfectly well although not completely strong i was to follow him in a fortnight when as he said we would look over letters and talk about several things i knew what this little speech alluded to and shrank from the train of thought it suggested which was so intimately connected with my first feelings of illness however i had a fortnight more to roam on those invigorating yorkshire moors in those days there was one large rambling inn at harrogate close to the medicinal spring but it was already becoming too small for the accommodation of the influx of visitors and many lodged round about in the farmhouses of the district it was so early in the season that i had the inn pretty much to myself and indeed felt rather like a visitor in a private house so intimate had the landlord and landlady become with me during my long illness she would chide me for being out so late on the moors or for having been too long without food quite in a motherly way while he consulted me about vintages and wines and taught me many a yorkshire wrinkle about horses in my walks i met other strangers from time to time even before my uncle had left me i had noticed with half torpid curiosity a young lady of very striking appearance who went about always accompanied by an elderly companion hardly a gentlewoman but with something in her look that prepossessed me in her favour 
the younger lady always put her veil down when any one approached so it had been only once or twice when i had come upon her at a sudden turn in the path that i had even had a glimpse of her face i am not sure if it was beautiful though in after-life i grew to think it so but it was at this time overshadowed by a sadness that never varied a pale quiet resigned look of intense suffering that irresistibly attracted me not with love but with a sense of infinite compassion for one so young yet so hopelessly unhappy the companion wore something of the same look quiet melancholy hopeless yet resigned i asked my landlord who they were he said they were called clark and wished to be considered as mother and daughter but that for his part he did not believe that to be their right name or that there was any such relationship between them they had been in the neighbourhood of arrogate for some time lodging in a remote farmhouse the people there would tell nothing about them saying that they paid handsomely and never did any harm so why should they be speaking of any strange things that might happen that as the landlord shrewdly observed showed there was something out of the common way he had heard that the elderly woman was a cousin of the farmers where they lodged and so the regard existing between relations might help to keep them quiet what did he think then was the reason for their extreme seclusion asked i nay he could not tell not he he had heard that the young lady for all as quiet as she seemed played strange pranks at times he shook his head when i asked him for more particulars and refused to give them which made me doubt if he knew any for he was in general a talkative and communicative man in default of other interests after my uncle left i set myself to watch these two people i hovered about their walks drawn towards them with a strange fascination which was not diminished by their evident annoyance at so frequently meeting me one day i had the sudden good fortune to be at hand when they were alarmed by the attack of a bull which in those unenclosed grazing districts was a particularly dangerous occurrence i have other and more important things to relate than to tell of the accident which gave me an opportunity of rescuing them it is enough to say that this event was the beginning of an acquaintance reluctantly acquiesced in by them but eagerly prosecuted by me i can hardly tell when intense curiosity became merged in love but in less than ten days after my uncle's departure i was passionately enamoured of mistress lucy as her attendant called her carefully for this i noted well avoiding any address which appeared as if there was an equality of station between them i noticed also that mrs clark the elderly woman after her first reluctance to allow me to pay them any attentions had been overcome was cheered by my evident attachment to the young girl it seemed to lighten her heavy burden of care and she evidently favoured my visits to the farmhouse where they lodged it was not so with lucy a more attractive person i never saw in spite of her depression of manner and shrinking avoidance of me i felt sure at once 
that whatever was the source of her grief it rose from no fault of her own it was difficult to draw her into conversation but when at times for a moment or two i beguiled her into talk i could see a rare intelligence in her face and a grave trusting look in the soft grey eyes that were raised for a minute to mine i made every excuse i possibly could for going there i sought wild flowers for lucy's sake i planned walks for lucy's sake i watched the heavens by night in hopes that some unusual beauty of sky would justify me in tempting mrs clark and lucy forth upon the moors to gaze at the great purple dome above it seemed to me that lucy was aware of my love but that for some motive which i could not guess she would fain have repelled me but then again i saw or fancied i saw that her heart spoke in my favour and that there was a struggle going on in her mind which at times i loved so dearly i could have begged her to spare herself even though the happiness of my whole life should have been the sacrifice for her complexion grew paler her aspect of sorrow more hopeless her delicate frame yet slighter during this period i had written i should say to my uncle to beg to be allowed to prolong my stay at arrogate not giving any reason but such was his tenderness towards me that in a few days i heard from him giving me a willing permission and only charging me to take care of myself and not use too much exertion during the hot weather one sultry evening i drew near the farm the windows of their parlour were open and i heard voices when i turned the corner of the house as i passed the first window there were two windows in their little ground-floor room i saw lucy distinctly but when i had knocked at their door the house door stood always ajar she was gone and i only saw mrs clark turning over the work things lying on the table in a nervous and purposeless manner i felt by instinct that a conversation of some importance was coming on in which i should be expected to say what was my object in paying these frequent visits i was glad of the opportunity my uncle had several times alluded to the pleasant possibility of my bringing home a young wife to cheer and adorn the old house in ormond street he was rich and i was to succeed him and had as i knew a fair reputation for so young a lawyer so on my side i saw no obstacle it was true that lucy was shrouded in mystery her name i was convinced it was not clark birth parentage and previous life were unknown to me but i was sure of her goodness and sweet innocence and although i knew that there must be something painful to be told to account for her mournful sadness yet i was willing to bear my share of her grief whatever it might be mrs clark began as if it was a relief to her to plunge into the subject we have thought sir at least i have thought that you know very little of us nor we of you indeed not enough to warrant the intimate acquaintance we have fallen into i beg your pardon sir she went on nervously i am but a plain kind of woman and i mean to use no rudeness but i must say straight out that i we think it would be better for you not to come so often to see us 
she is very unprotected and why should i not come to see you dear madam asked i eagerly glad of the opportunity of explaining myself i come i own because i have learnt to love mistress lucy and wish to teach her to love me mistress clark shook her head and sighed don't sir neither love her nor for the sake of all you hold sacred teach her to love you if i am too late and you love her already forget her forget these last few weeks oh i should never have allowed you to come she went on passionately but what am i to do we are forsaken by all except the great god and even he permits a strange and evil power to afflict us what am i to do where is it to end she wrung her hands in her distress then she turned to me go away sir go away before you learn to care any more for her i ask it for your own sake i implore you have been good and kind to us and we shall always recollect you with gratitude but go away now and never come back to cross our fatal path indeed madam said i i shall do no such thing you urge it for my own sake i have no fear so urged nor wish except to hear more all i cannot have seen mistress lucy in all the intimacy of this last fortnight without acknowledging her goodness and innocence and without seeing pardon me madam that for some reason you are two very lonely women in some mysterious sorrow and distress now though i am not powerful myself yet i have friends who are so wise and kind that they may be said to possess power tell me some particulars why are you in grief what is your secret why are you here i declare solemnly that nothing you have said has daunted me in my wish to become lucy's husband nor will i shrink from any difficulty that as such an aspirant i may have to encounter you say you are friendless why cast away an honest friend i will tell you of people to whom you may write and who will answer any questions as to my character and prospects i do not shun inquiry she shook her head again you had better go away sir you know nothing about us i know your names said i and i have heard you allude to the part of the country from which you came which i happen to know as a wild and lonely place there are so few people living in it that if i chose to go there i could easily ascertain all about you but i would rather hear it from yourself you see i wanted to pique her into telling me something definite you do not know our true name sir said she hastily well i may have conjectured as much but tell me then i conjure you give me your reasons for distrusting my willingness to stand by what i have said with regard to mistress lucy oh what can i do exclaimed she if i am turning away a true friend as he says stay coming to a sudden decision i will tell you something i cannot tell you all you would not believe it but perhaps i can tell you enough to prevent your going on in your hopeless attachment i am not lucy's mother so i conjectured i said go on 
i do not even know whether she is the legitimate or illegitimate child of her father but he is cruelly turned against her and her mother is long dead and for a terrible reason she has no other creature to keep constant to her but me she only two years ago such a darling and such a pride in her father's house why sir there is a mystery that might happen in connection with her any moment and then you would go away like all the rest and when you next heard her name you would loathe her others who have loved her longer have done so before now my poor child whom neither god nor man has mercy upon or surely she would die the good woman was stopped by her crying i confess i was a little stunned by her last words but only for a moment at any rate till i knew definitely what this mysterious stain upon one so simple and pure as lucy seemed i would not desert her and so i said and she made answer if you are daring in your heart to think harm of my child sir after knowing her as you have done you are no good man yourself but i am so foolish and helpless in my great sorrow that i would fain hope to find a friend in you i cannot help trusting that although you may no longer feel towards her as a lover you will have pity upon us and perhaps by your learning you can tell us where to go for aid i implore you tell me what this mystery is i cried almost maddened by this suspense i cannot said she solemnly i am under a deep vow of secrecy if you are to be told it must be by her she left the room and i remained to ponder over the strange interview i mechanically turned over the few books and with eyes that saw nothing at the time examined the tokens of lucy's frequent presence in that room when i got home at night i remembered how all these trifles spoke of a pure and tender heart and innocent life mistress clark returned she had been crying sadly yes said she it is as i feared she loves you so much that she is willing to run the fearful risk of telling you all herself she acknowledges it is but a poor chance but your sympathy will be a balm if you give it to-morrow come here at ten in the morning and as you hope for pity in your hour of agony repress all show of fear or repugnance you may feel towards one so grievously afflicted i half smiled have no fear i said it seemed too absurd to imagine my feeling dislike to lucy her father loved her well said she gravely yet he drove her out like some monstrous thing just at this moment came a peal of ringing laughter from the garden it was lucy's voice it sounded as if she were standing just on one side of the open casement and as though she were suddenly stirred to merriment merriment verging on boisterousness by the doings or sayings of some other person i can scarcely say why but the sound jarred on me inexpressibly she knew the subject of our conversation and must have been at least aware of the state of agitation her friend was in she herself usually so gentle and quiet i half rose to go to the window 
and satisfy my instinctive curiosity as to what had provoked this burst of ill-timed laughter but mrs clark threw her whole weight and power upon the hand with which she pressed and kept me down for god's sake she said white and trembling all over sit still be quiet oh be patient to-morrow you will know all leave us for we are all sorely afflicted do not seek to know more about us again that laugh so musical in sound yet so discordant to my heart she held me tight tighter without positive violence i could not have risen i was sitting with my back to the window but i felt a shadow pass between the sun's warmth and me and a strange shudder ran through my frame in a minute or two she released me go repeated she be warned i ask you once more i do not think you can stand this knowledge that you seek if i had had my own way lucy should never have yielded and promised to tell you all who knows what may come of it i am firm in my wish to know all i return at ten to-morrow morning and then expect to see mistress lucy herself i turned away having my own suspicions i confess as to mistress clark's sanity end of section twenty five